Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Tayosega Kakushino Koso Eyo Koso. Zainichi Kanada Jinseiji Gaksha. So stay, stay, enjoy Tayose to Kakushin, no founder to CEO, Steele Jakitomoshimas. Yoroshkomagaitashimas. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm the CEO of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation and also a longtime、uh, Canadian political scientist here working in Japan. Enjoy, for those who are not familiar,、uh, is a Japan based global facing company. And、uh, we work in English and French and Japanese, and we're committed to providing research, policy, and evidence based DI training and education for leaders and corporations on、uh, the importance of intersectional diversity. If that's a new concept for you, we'd love to share about that. Accessibility, holistic corporate policy ecosystems that empower individuals and groups, and of course, innovation. Innovation that supports efforts to bring inclusion. Uh, and, in, in, and that fosters holistic well being. And in fact, innovation that really supports democratic equality and that powers our people's systems by design, intentionally. So, the live stream today is intending to shine a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of the Enjoy DNI Thought Partner Network. Each of these individuals are making a unique contribution and they are bringing their diversities、uh, to the fore. Using their own model of inclusive leadership to change things here in Japan and also across Asia Pacific. So, we call this live stream thought partnering out loud. And what that means is we're taking on this practice, this new concept and practice of thought partnering,、uh, which I learned about from a leadership coach in the United States、uh, many years back. And it stuck with me as a really important tool、uh, to guide lifelong learning and to help us build solidarity with. Other people who are different from us and to learn from each other. So it's a pillar of how Enjoy as a business is committed to role modeling, if you will, this horizontal,、uh, recipro recipro reciprocal giving of ourselves and of our talents as leaders and stakeholders working within and across、uh, Japan and the Asia Pacific. So each week I feature one of my esteemed Enjoy DI thought partners. These individuals enrich my thinking and they help my business innovate. They help me redefine and rethink how Enjoy can be more innovative and how it can be、uh, mobilizing diversity、uh, in many interesting ways. So, we just show up as two human beings, as individuals.、Uh, we throw out the business cards to the extent we can. We're just two people talking out loud. There's no senpai kohai relationships, there's mentoring and reverse mentoring in the space. We, we move beyond and in defiance of the, you know, the various toxic. Socializations that we've been experiencing as we grow up、uh, over the years, be it around gender or race or sexual orientation or ability or language. And we just show up together to learn from each other、uh, and to really respect each other's diversity and each other's individual, radical individuality. I invite all of us to become open to the gray zones of race, gender, ability, nationality, sexual orientation, professional expertise, business cards, this, that, and the other, titles, affiliations, shozoku, and just embrace the gray zones of all of those markers of our identities and then enrich、uh, the conversation for our lives and for our communities. So we'll take 55 minutes and have a journey of seeking out those nuances. And we'll find the joy really in diversity as a driver of innovation. And that makes really, I think, as a political scientist,、um, the project of democratic self government so exciting. I know most people don't find democratic self government exciting, but I really do. And I think it's worth pursuing in our homes, our workplaces, our communities, and also, of course, through our transnational social justice networks or through our global sustainability networks. 
and also in our interpersonal relationships. Today, my guest is Casey Wall. And this is someone who I consider to be a trusted friend. Casey, you can join me on screen now. Come on board. <laughs> Casey has been a trusted friend, uh, an inspirational colleague, someone who's been amazingly generous uh, as a mentor to me in this journey I have started upon trying to learn how to be an entrepreneur and uh, a CEO of a company here in Japan. And he has shared his learnings, his challenges as a business builder and a change agent himself here in Japan. And this has really genuinely helped light my way forward um, in so many pivotal ways and given me such a sense of safety net and, uh, and, and support. So thank you, Casey, and welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I, I think I'm just an idiot that makes a lot of mistakes and happy to share those <laughs> transparently. That's, that's about it. <laughs> no way. Not at all. There's so many things, just so many gems of, of, of inspiration and advice you've given me that have been really pivotal. Um, if you sift through all the other stuff, right? <laughs> but you do it with such grace, right? And such like learning and vulnerability and humility that I think that is so important also for leaders to be able to say, yeah, uh, this didn't work. Yeah, this kind of didn't go how, how I'd hope. Um, but <laughs> so I think that's going to be the next 55 minutes of, yeah, that didn't work. This didn't work. <laughs> but I think there's so many things that are working really well. And so I also want us to shine a light on that because I am personally so inspired with so much of what you've been doing. And I would maybe uh, start by inviting you to uh, share a bit about, uh, I know most people, because we are foreign nationals in Japan, often this conversation starts with, well, who are you? And, uh, you know, what are the main parts of yourself that are really key to how you define your identity as yourself, as Casey Wall? Um, what defines you um, and what is important to you in, in how you self-define, I guess? And I know we, we self-define differently when we're back in our home countries versus from when we're in our adoptive home countries of Japan. But maybe talk to me about where you fit yourself and how you would describe yourself, plural, here in 2021 today? That's probably one of the toughest interview <laughs> questions I've had. And like, you know, I've been like live on CNBC and CNN and, you know, ask about like China trade policy and the Shanghai Stock Exchange, which I don't know much about on live, you know, national TV, but my identity. Um, I think a lot of it's, you know, we, with anybody just shaped by how we grew up and how we, you know, kind of learned about the world. So I grew up in, you know, a 900 person town in the, in the desert of Saudi Arabia. It's kind of like a military base, but it was kind of a, an oil manufacturing or kind of oil refining facility in the middle of the desert. And I was there from when I was one to like 15. I almost got deported a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> wow. I went to, so they don't have any English speaking education after high school, or sorry, after okay. middle school. So actually the company my father worked for basically paid for boarding school, you know, so that way employees would stay. So I went to boarding school in kind of the Northeast of uh, America. So that was a big shock. Uh, I think oh, I wow. Kind of wow. went from the desert, you know, oh yeah, by myself, you know, and uh, I wanted to go and everybody kind of has to go, but I kind of wanted to go. But uh, that was a culture shock because you're, you know, I'm American. It's kind of an American culture, but it's like an American culture from like the 1950s or 60s in this military base in the desert. And then you go into, okay, it was the 90s at the time when I went into high school and I have no idea what the trends are. I think I use archaic words. My jokes are at a different pace than everybody. So, you know, I got made fun of a lot. There were some not very nice epithets from that. 
finally got the, the hang of things, but then I got kicked out three months Why? before graduation. Uh, I think I left them no choice. I had what? You were unruly? I think this just goes back to the entrepreneurial thing, right? Like it, it must be a little bit of DNA. You know, I do think entrepreneurialism, it can be learned, but it, at least for me, it was just always testing the rules, right? And like, okay, what is the boundary? How far can you go? You know, and just kind of testing things. So I had like five or six on-campus suspensions and, you know, a couple of off-campus suspension. It was just like, oh, well, you know, that's Was it the- sort of innocent truancy or were you like the engineering, you know, faculty at UBC building a card of Lego on the roof of the engineering building for kicks? Or, you know, there's these stories that you see of different different ways in which truancy plays out in different ways. Is it Was it pushing boundaries that you were trying to explore your freedoms or were you also trying to just build something new or bring something forward that was different well there, you know we were building forts in the woods and stuff like that what we're not supposed to do you know there there was alcohol and stuff related and kind of exploring those boundaries and you know there i can think social boundaries kind of being related but uh there are quite a few pranks you know and uh some all school pranks that, you know, disrupted school for hours at a time and, and stuff like that. And I thought they were brilliant at the time, but you know, I can understand <laughs> kind of going back and looking at those, how they can be, you know. Now, now as a parent and, and, and someone in a different stage of life, when you think back, would you, if you were an educator in those schools, how would you have um, welcomed those brilliant pranks? I think I've certainly got a high tolerance for it. And you know, I think, you know, people understand people like themselves, right? You know, so I could understand somebody who's doing the pranks, you know, uh, I don't think I'm a bad human or there's not really trying to hurt, you know, people. You're not feelings. just a Yankee. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing the Saitama squat and the Yankee, you know, type of thing like that, running around, uh, riding around on the motorcycle, super loud, disrupting. But, uh, <laughs> we have that but, in our um, neighborhood from time to time, yeah. Yeah, even then, like, it it was kind of, you know, setting up for entrepreneurialism. So, like, a lot of teachers just hated me, like, absolutely hated me. Like, you know, I I didn't study, but I got very good grades. You know, I was lucky in that sense. And, you know, they knew I was somewhere just waiting to catch me all the time. Others, I was disappointing. And then there was just, like, one or two that kind of understood me, you know, and, you know, I felt Mm -hmm. understood. And, you know, I think that's when I started to realize how important understanding is and, you know, how, like, one person just understanding you and kind of seeing past everything else that you know gets like seeing you being exactly. seen for like you're a free spirit and that that doesn't make you a bad person exactly right. exactly maybe so, you're not yeah. docile and controllable and in schools we kind of oh, want our kids not. right we want our kids to be i think the education system overly builds that in to accept compliance and obedience and docility but then we're killing the innovation right we're killing the potential for thinking outside the box and the innovation in these bright well, minds yeah, and just the humanity and the souls of them right you know like I think if you're forcing a kid that has lots of energy and you know needs <laughs> to kind of like my young daughter she's just two but she's kind of the same she breaks she always tests the boundaries she's always doing kind of physically risky stuff and she's always kind of egging you on to see if you're gonna get you know upset by what she does exactly you know there's a little bit of a twinkle in the eye just okay she's always socially kind of you know programming and seeing what's going there so yeah my my six-year-old is like that he's very uh, very active and uh yeah it's it's interesting as a parent (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to try and figure out how to navigate that while yeah wanting to protect 
to keep their spirits untamed, right? Like we don't want to tame them. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's how do we channel that? It, right? yeah. How do we channel yeah. that positively? Mm-hmm. So you've written a book and I think, I mean, the first time we had uh, spoken, you, you shared with me about the book you had written around entrepreneurialism and the startup ecosystem in Japan and that you had been curious and, and I guess interviewed uh, a whole variety of, of startup founders. What, what led to that project here when you were, when you were deciding just out of the blue to, to, to do this research and then turn it into a, a book to share? I think it was, you know, like, like entrepreneurialism or kind of creating thing. It's just this like tightness of energy for me. It's like got to be released. Right. And I think there was just so much pent up energy and that, uh, you know, I had to write that book and kind of the, the reason was it was like failure, uh, you know, up until that point. So we had started wall in case, you know, uh, a recruitment firm in, in Japan. And the idea was to innovate globally and kind of do that. And, you know, we, we were quickly, you know, pretty successful. We were a profitable type of thing. So we started to try quite a bit of innovations, you know, and we were doing like different tech companies. I think we launched five kind of projects, you know, whether they were full companies or, or not, and they all failed. Some failed quickly, some failed very painfully. Um, <laughs> it was expensive, it was emotional. And basically, you know, we were kind of doing this, we were doing tech recruitment. So we were seeing what kind of startups and things were trending in Silicon Silicon Valley at the time. Um, this was what 11 years ago when we we first, you know, founded the firm, and there wasn't this startup culture at the time. So you know, there there wasn't a lot, a lot of resources. There so much has changed. It's amazing, and this is how fast things change and how fast things normalize in Japan is is incredible. But like mm-hmm. there entrepreneurialism was still weird. There, there was really no resources for it. But I was meeting a lot of kind of elite Japanese at the time. And, you know, from McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or Todai or whatever. And they're like, oh, you became an entrepreneur. I'm so impressed. This is so amazing. You know, I wish I could have the courage to do that. So we were kind of putting all these pieces together. So, okay, we have some excess capital. You know, we, we know how to hire people and we can, you know, we have this entrepreneurialism bent. We see this talent that want to become entrepreneurs. And we see, you know, tech that's training. And at the time, there was this idea arbitrage and it was like seven or eight months before, you know, something in Silicon Valley got set up, you know, in Japan. So we put it all together and launched like five projects and five kind of companies. So we'd recruit in the CEO, put in some seed money, try to kind of build things up and they all failed. And it was- You had top talent, you had money investment, but the secret sauce was missing. Something was- Well, I think it wasn't their idea, right? And it wasn't their kind of entrepreneurialism. So, you know, and there were many, we didn't have enough capital to kind of go through like the different stages of growth. So, you know, we could get like early product market fit, but when you try to put them on this ladder of VC and, you know, again, VC, there weren't that many VC, they weren't very risk-taking. They were kind of like more corporate salary VC at the time. Like they're like, right. oh, you know, who's these people that own some shares that help you set it up? And we don't trust them. We don't know who they are. So nobody would kind of follow on and invest as well. So, mm. so it was difficult. And like basically, you know, over two and a half years, kind of learned how to build a tech company. You know, we had engineers or, or kind of how to build like a tech service. You know, what goes well, what doesn't go well in Japan. And I felt that story had to be told. And like, I really need to tell, like, this was really, really painful. You know? <laughs> and so the idea to do it, okay, you know, coming from recruitment, interviewing people and, you know, who wants to read about Casey Wall's story after he's been 
you know, an entrepreneur for two or three years, like that's not interesting. But, you know, Japanese like to read about themselves through a foreigner's eye. Like there's a whole kind of mm. group. So I'm like, okay. Like a you subgenre. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, you know, okay, let's interview Japanese founders at the time. Um, and get them to talk really about the pain. And of course, because I had experienced it, I knew really kind of what the different pains are. I could ask questions. And what and, questions to ask. And there was never, there wasn't any book like it at the time, like that really kind of made entrepreneurialism human, right? It was always these hero stories like, okay, you know, the founder of this company, he was so smart and he had this wonderful- mm, The unicorn stories. And, yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's always kind of the- the same trope of, you know, the, the brilliant genius who starts in a garage in Silicon Valley. And and, and, and it's a little bit too genius. manufactured and it doesn't feel human, yeah. right? You know? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't diversify the, the models of entrepreneurialism that we really need to have on the market so that we're really inspiring all types of people, not just the computer science brilliant nerd who, you know, wants to sit in the, in, in the parents garage with two friends and, 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 you know, build the next whatever it is. I think certainly as a woman, I've never found those stories inspiring very much. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not accessible to the backgrounds that I've come through on law and political science, for one. And it sort of creates this stereotype that unless you're in tech or in coding or in some kind of area of engineering or computer science, that is you know, you're, that's not a part of, you're not probably not destined to be in the tech space. And so then you don't see yourself in that space and you don't see yourself as having a potential pathway of building something that's tech related. And I think this is something that through our conversations, I really learned from you on at what point did, I think I asked you, cause I was having this sort of existential, you know, crisis of, well, is Enjoy going to be predominantly a consulting firm? Or are we going to be doing something different than that, that is broader and that maybe has a little bit more breadth and impact? And I was thinking about when did you redefine Wall and Case from being in the recruitment and consulting space to being a tech company? And I think I asked you that question and it really helped me think about, okay, how would I pivot and joy to then maybe identify first and foremost as, as a tech company? And secondarily with the consulting, supporting the build out after, but that the tech piece is, is first. And then how does that change my, my relationship to tech as someone coming out of law and political science and not at all in the, you know, technical skills, uh, engineering, coding. Do you, do you want to maybe share a little bit about how the wall and case journey and how you've built out that tech identity and how you, you pivoted to be a tech firm? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it was long and again, it's just failure. <laughs> like, so the idea, like, you know, when I started Wall in Case, it, like the vision was to be global and innovate, innovate recruitment at a global kind of capacity. What was wrong with uh, recruitment at the time that you felt you wanted to change it? Uh, it's, it's still so broken, right? Like, I, I mean, if, if you ask people like the NPS, the Net Promoter Score, you know, for candidates and clients, they, they've all had bad experiences, right? So almost every candidate and client that's worked with a recruiter, probably they've had a bad experience, you know, whether it's not understanding them as an individual, misrepresenting information, not doing proper follow-up, and, and kind of, you know, recruitment, when people are changing jobs, it's one of the most stressful, you know, kind of high anxiety times in their, in their life, right? And, you know, so I'm changing my identity. I'm going to a whole environment, you know, a new environment, a new boss, you know, and this well, is going to be... Well, you're coming under 
coming under scrutiny by all of these new actors who were like looking at your CV and are you talented and are you qualified and do we want you or do we like the rejection, right? That you go through when you're on the market is. Exactly. And it's like, even the interview process is a different skill set. Like being good at your job and interviewing are totally different, right? So there's some really good interviews that aren't great at their job and and kind of vice versa. So it's super stressful. And I I think both sides, you know, on the, like the client that's hiring, they don't have a lot of visibility about, okay, who are the candidates available? Like if you think of your, your typical hiring manager, they only get to hire like once every two years or so. You know, and they want that, you know, awesome, awesome kind of unicorn and they want champagne for beer money. And like, okay, those are the wrong expectations and they have to kind of be educated by the market and people aren't going to be, you know, 120% qualified and then work for your 80% pay and you're 80, you know. So they've got to go through that kind of learning curve and that emotional curve and, and same on, you know, kind of the individual side. So I think like from both sides, like time, there's so much time that's just wasted there's not enough you know information on like people are kind of going blind on these big life decisions i think the decision making is very broken you know about how people go about making decisions and kind of what we're talking about you know diversity and inclusion what you were saying about kind of entrepreneurs and like they have this pattern that they know but that's not they hire they kind of hire i mean certainly the what i've seen in the last two years of just looking at every research results i can find on hiring processes and from a dni perspective and how ironically what I keep finding is that it corroborates the last 25 years of what I've been looking at at recruitment into political parties where the people recruiting are recruiting people like them and they're recruiting the usual suspects who look like them and who talk like them and who come from their same you know todai or whatever kale or you know ivy league backgrounds predominantly men recruiting men and so if you don't have any kind of a process to diversify recruitment pop process, the recruiters or the gatekeepers for political parties, or be it the recruiters who are the gatekeepers for companies, they, they're they not diversifying the talent pool because they themselves have all these blind spots on thinking that excellence is this one monolithic image. And it happens to look a lot like themselves, right? It's just like, well, I mean, ironic it's, how yeah, that, really, sort of like, we need to move outside that box and say, okay, social affinity biases play out in a really interesting way, but we need to then say, okay, well, how do we How do we build out processes that check all of those blind spots we have? And not just through like a one-off unconscious bias training workshop, you know, memorizing the 30 unconscious biases are not going to make us have a better process if the, it's not really built into the DNA of the process itself to say at what levels are the, are the blind spots and the biases going to manifest? And then how are we checking that and mitigating that at every single stage? Right. Um, And you don't really see that happening. And then, and that's assuming that the data the AI-driven data, checking the CVs and scanning, like pre-screening all the CVs aren't weeding out. They've already weeded out so many candidates through the AI system sometimes um, because you're not showing up with the undergraduate degree in computer science or you're not showing up with full bilingualism in English and Japanese for the Japanese market. Even if the job doesn't require Japanese language skills, sometimes that filter's turned on. And so there's just a funnel that just reduces down to who the actual hiring you know, manager even gets to see and consider is so narrowed superficially. And I wonder what is your experience? You've built a really interesting service uh, that you can maybe speak to about how you're combining. I think you you say, I'm going to find it. I know I, I, I wrote it down for EQIQ. So maybe you can also, that's a good segue to talk about 
what was the wall and case journey and then how you pivoted towards the EQIQ journey of being a CEO of EQIQ as a larger entity that's sort of building a broader, I guess, base and, and infrastructure of these services. But the EQIQ, I love the motto that you say, you balance the EQ of consulting with the IQ of technological innovation. You, you um, delivered that so fantastic. Thank you. How do you, but how do you protect for, I mean, right, this is such a big piece around AI and big data being fraught also because programmed by imperfect human beings who build their biases right into the way the AI machine codes and then scans for CVs. And, and, and how do you mitigate it? I mean, how do you deal with that for your I, I think what you know what you've just talked about, like this is what I find fascinating. And I, you know, humans, we need to work. You know, we're we need to have industry. You know, we're an industrative, you know, kind of yeah. species, right? And if we don't, like, there's going to be a lot more war and all these kind of negative things. So, and how do you hire? But like, we're talking about kind of hiring all the the problems involved, and it is bias is so easy. And I think to hire properly, you almost have to unlearn to be human, right? You know, it's, okay, I want to hire somebody great, and I need to trust them, right? It's that trust component is there, you know, and there's lots of studies on trust, okay, you know, it's easier to build trust with somebody who has five commonalities with you, right? Mm. You know, like five kind of things. And some external ones are very easy, right? So people kind of get into these patterns and like when, you know, a company is busy, busy and they have a lot of stress and they've never been trained properly. So they're going to easily kind of fall into those type of patterns, right? You know, I think larger companies where this becomes an issue and they have kind of the resources and they can kind of unteach, you know, some of these biases and kind of show the trust and, and the output, you know, hiring more, exactly, of more diversity and kind of more inclusion. It's incredibly difficult. And this is what we want to solve. And this is what I wanted to solve with the company is, you know, when I was, I love recruitment to death when I was coming through it, like I had a ton of bosses that said, hey, it's not rocket science, but it is, it is, it's beyond rocket science. I really think, you know, we've got what, how many million, billions of neurons in our brains and how many connections between all of those, like all of the endpoints and the way we go to decisions is so different. And you emotions. Know, from, right. And emotions. Factoring kind of, it on top of, and the adrenaline and the immune system and the, you know, right? the nervous system all interrupting. Right. You know, you go in, you meet a charismatic manager, you know, oh, that was really exciting. That was stimulating conversation. I would join the company, but it's a horrible work environment. Perfectly kind of normal case type of thing. Yeah. So you're making, you know, a bad decision with bad input. So, you know, whether we're making sure. bad decisions with bad inputs, you know, because of our own biases or we're over relying on our friends information or our family's information, or does that come down to data type of thing, or what are the data inputs? Right. It's very complex. And, you know, this is what we want to do with EQIQ, right? So there's a humanity side. We don't forget about being human. We don't forget that, hey, emotion is a part of how we make decisions. Emotion is a part of, you know, having satisfactory lives. It's a big part of who we are. You know, it can't be all data. And this is, you know, where I get frustrated with tech companies. It's all data all the time. And it goes back to, you know, all right, you know, AI is going to Data doesn't give us wisdom, right? It just does not. It, I mean, it's like, for me, as a, as a, you know, political scientist from, you know, social science background of 25 years, it, it's frustrating that the natural sciences, I mean, in the old, in the olden days, in the good old, you know, like going back to Aristotle, we did not break down knowledge systems into natural science and social science. We just had sciences and knowledge and wisdom and political philosophy was as core to understanding the world and that the world isn't flat, right? Political philosophy was as essential to exploring with observation and, you know, actually using scientific testing of the real world. Those were integrated. And I feel that superficial division of how we break things down 
there's this idea that data equals wisdom, but data requires critical thinking skills and high level analysis to, you know, to really weed out the noise of data that, that isn't really helpful evidence. And what is the actual core data that gives us evidence-based decision-making that is generating wisdom and wise, wise practices, right? I think that so is so I wise think, and so true, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I feel like the, the big data, you know, we need to have big labs and big data and, and uh, quantitative this, that, and the other as if you could bypass humanity and wisdom and ethics and, and political philosophy. And why are we doing this? Like what ultimately why are we doing this? And if it's not about, in principle, every company says they're doing it because they want to contribute something good for human well-being, but then why would you bypass the human (laughs) in the whole processes of the data collection or of the data processes? So it is a bit mind-boggling. Those are my current pet peeves. And, you know, I think I could go on rants on on that, like is, you know, especially in in startups and tech, like there's an overemphasis on STEM, you know, you know, going back. Yes. We're entering it. It's like, okay, if you don't come from a STEM background type of thing and how important STEM is and STEM should rule the world and STEM should be in kind of the education. But we are human. You know, storytelling is critical to humanity, you know, and if you want to do anything like why aren't we taught more storytelling in school? You know, why aren't we bringing this? So this is where data cannot Sometimes it can help us, but it doesn't give us storytelling skills. Communication, our happiness comes from communication and mutual understanding, right? Where are we learning this? Is that built into tech products? Oh, 99% of them, no, absolutely not. So, and building like, trust within you know, community, yeah. Exactly, building, so, you know, you know I, th- I think a lot of, you know, the tech and, you know, the current trajectory is this STEM, is this data and bigger systems and, you know, that why are we doing it? Okay, you know, we're making life a little bit more optimized. We're making more efficient so we can be productive, but is that what we want to be as humans? No, we don't want to, right? be a robot who is efficient? (laughs) Like, you know, I don't need data to monitor everything. Like I should in touch, you know, if my body is off, I don't need a, like a watch telling me, like I should be able to be in touch with feeling, you know, that type of thing. This is where I think, you know, people like yourself and like, we need more people kind of from the humanities to bring that into the tech. And I, I think this should be the next wave or the next 10 to 15 years and the nice thing is it's getting easier to start up right you know like you can buy the different components like ai is pretty much going to be a commodity in the next several years right you can buy different components and plug it into your system and of course you know if you have a humanity background you have kind of more an ethical kind of training okay what data are we putting into this and over time you know people do want to buy a human system and that makes them feel better not just only efficient too well, I think you can trust it. I mean, there's reasons why I think we will never completely automate so many jobs. I mean, I know that it's it's, it's core to the Japanese industry to think that robots will, will solve, you know, caregiving and a whole bunch of other things. But there's a point at which in some areas, I'm not sure we want to have a robot caregiving us when we're, you know, at a certain point of vulnerability in our life or wanting to be caregived by someone who has warm emotions where we would feel that sense of trust and connection. And so we we have to think through what are the ethical implications of when we're going to farm out and what, what can you really farm out and, and outsource to being automated and what still requires high level critical thinking and human judgment on the ethical front, because things can go wrong very quickly if we don't sort of bring in those checks and balances. We even have a hard time doing that in our human process and our people processes as human beings. So why do we think we can do it better with robots is beyond me. 
I know that in, for example, Canada in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, there's been sort of a push to say we, we talk about STEAM and it's STEM plus the A for arts to try and sort of regain the balance that it can't just always be this absence of art and philosophy and music. And of course, we, we know the research shows that people who do really, really well in languages and in music generally do well in math because this is just all code or language, right? And so when we think about, and you see people who are highly trained in music and they actually do quite well in the math sides of things, they also speak three languages or four languages. They have you know, access to understanding different codes of, inter of interaction and behavior through the different language communities that they have now you know, culturally acclimatized to, to be able to speak those languages at a high level. Those are skills that we are forgetting is part of coding. It's part of math, it's a part of logic, and it's a part of how we think through connection and community. I mean, I, I don't, for myself and for you, I imagine what you would say and how you would say it in Japanese and the cultural norms around connection and community and shinrai kanke, right? Like how like relations of trust plays out and how you speak the Japanese language is quite different from how you speak trust or perform, linguistically perform trust in English. All of that's code, right? It's, it, but it's very high, highly sophisticated coding through the language and the culture together all immersed. And I guess I would love to hear you speak a bit more about intrinsic motivation because I think this concept is really exciting to me. I mean, I've, I've, I've done and have been building out more of an interest in the last, I mean, really it started with my own mother, frankly, in, in the last, you know, raising me, she was always talking about you know, positive psychology and like emotional intelligence and how do you build your communication skills and how do you build? And she was very enthused about those topics and, and was an entrepreneur herself. So the irony that here I had this role model of a mom who was an entrepreneur her whole life, but I had never seen myself in that role as an entrepreneur until very late in the game, right? Um, but so how does that knowledge around emotional intelligence and psychology, because I know that's deeply embedded into the concept of intrinsic motivation that you use within the attuned uh, software service and consulting. Can you talk more about this concept? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm still excited about the last one. So like Steam, that's the first time I've ever heard that. You know, oh, and okay. I, I really wish, you know, Canada could have a larger voice, you know, I'm sure that try, oh God, like, <laughs> like it's, you know, it's too much dominated by Silicon Valley. And I think it's very myopic, right. But like steam is fantastic. And I, I think I really wish whatever I can do to help, but please, you're doing something great <laughs> with this. Like, I think that, I think that needs to be said more and more and more people to understand that. And like, just about like Japanese and, and trust, you know, and kind of the robot commentary is, I, I, you know, certainly Japan, and has this leading edge in, in robotics and a lot of things will be automated. But, you know, you know like the, the Japanese, you know, business ecosystem is driven by relationships, right? It's very relationship driven. It's not efficient. You know, there's still fax machine. There's still horrible, horrible forms you have to fill out, right? Um, but it's relationship driven. And I, I think this thought, and this is why, you know, I'm quite excited about now Japan's getting its digital ministry, you know, yeah. coming in next year type of thing it's like really that. really exciting. But I think they will have critical thinking about, okay, what is the human aspect of this? How do we keep this Japanese identity and relationship? And, you know, you were talking about trust and trust is critical for kind of us as, as humans to be satisfied and to accomplish anything. But yeah. 
in Japanese, there's more words of trust than there are in English. Like trust is broken down to kind of different things. And, you know, one of the like interesting insights that I've seen in, you know, at least for my work is when it comes to work, there can be shinyo, you know, you shin, like you can trust somebody to complete their task or you can plus yeah. you can trust somebody's competence. And then there's shinlai. You trust them yes. as a human, like a deeper form, right. form of trust. Right? More ethical. Um, what they say, even if it's kind of negative, you know, you get this higher le- higher level of psychological safety. But if you trust, have that shin lai, okay, you can get more negative feedback. You can have better discussion. You can have more yes. innovation type of thing. But so much trust is just shin yo. It's transactional. Okay, I can get it to complete yeah. the, the task, but then you don't have that. So I think that concept needs to be spoken about a lot more within organizations mm. and move just from shin yo to shin lai, like un, you know, really trusting them as a, as a human being. So onto intrinsic motivation, yeah. So like going back to helping people make better you know, decisions when it comes to you know, hiring and retaining. Who to have shin lai konke? Right. Whether they want to have whether they think they can see the possibility of relations of trust or deep trust in their new employer context. Right. You're kind of helping them gauge that. Exactly. So like up until Attune came out, like, how do you know somebody's intrinsic motivations? It's really hard to do that. You know, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people and I'd ask people, okay, what are you motivated by? You know, do we even have a common language? Do they have the self-awareness? Maybe they're quite complex and they have multiple motivations. So this was kind of the inspiration to do it because, you know, that motivational alignment with somebody entering a new organization and what that manager can provide, how they communicate, you know, do they, and basically like the, the research heart of it is, Intrinsic motivation is connected to somebody's value systems. So it's connected to their values towards work. So what you value equals what you're going to prioritize the goals that you're going to set. And these connect to your intrinsic motivations, which is more sustainable than extrinsic motivation, right? And, you know, I think most managers have been trained and, you know, most organizations have been set up for like, okay, incentives and more extrinsic motivations. Can you give me an example maybe, or a couple of examples of what is what is the difference? Of, maybe you can define for those of us who are less familiar. What would constitute intrinsic motivation examples versus what would be examples of extrinsic? Um, extrinsic would be more incentive based. You know, okay, here's a reward. Okay, so we're going to have a competition for this week. You know, okay, who can make the most number of phone calls, for example? So the competition and- element, someone is attracted by that. That could be that, or it could be here's like a prize or a shout out or something like that. So those can be kind of, and with extrinsic, so it, it's basically in the wording, like it's something coming from the outside to try to motivate you, right? So you have an external <clears throat> force doing that, you know, so it's the carrot and the stick is kind of more the traditional kind of way of looking at it, but it's quite short term, like it doesn't last. There's lots and lots of research that it does, it's not sustainable and it ruins creativity basically. Mm. So there's quite a lot of research for that. And then intrinsic motivation is this is where it's coming from inside. Again, going back to my story about why I wanted to write the book, like writing a book, I hated it. It was painful. Like, like I hear you. It was, it was <laughs> <laughs> it's, horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. So, you know, you don't want to write it. Like a lot of people go in with an extrinsic motivation. Okay. I want to be on a bestseller list. I want to get, you know, extra passive income. I just want to get it thing. done. <laughs> exactly. And you know, you have to write that book. Right. And so it's intrinsic motivation. So that's something driving you from the inside. That's more sustainable, right. And you'll overcome a lot more difficulties and, you know, more obstacles. Um, if it's raining, if it's cold, you're going to go to work. You're going to go to work more excitable, and it's a lot more sustainable type of thing. Is it so, connected to kind of passion? Not passion, but like it's value, internal values. 
It's internal values. So again, like, okay, what is the priorities for you? And what are your values for work? And your your value systems are, we're mostly set, you know, when we're in our formative years. So when we're kids, when we're teenagers, kind of our early adulthood, and values are a learned thing. So we learn our values from our environment. We learn it from our parents. We learn it from our schools. We learn it from our communities. So values can change over time, but they're the lowest level of our kind of psychological makeup, right? They're the deepest thing. There's no way for us to visually see them until kind of a tune came along. So, you know, going back to the decision-making, now that we can see each other's values towards work. And, and attuned well, measures. And measures you have them. this report, it comes out, it shows very clearly. So, okay, here's Jackie's values. Here's Casey's values. Here are my intrinsic motivations. And then we can map out the team. We can map out the gaps between individuals. And kind of what I really love about it is we can see the motivational gaps because, you know, mm. As you get larger and larger people, of course, you're not going to have the same motivations, right? You know, and what we found is intrinsic motivations are, are like a fingerprint. You know, they're very unique. There's 1.7 million different combinations. And this is why kind of managing people and managing people not like you is very, very difficult. Like, how do you understand them? But now, like, just graphically, we can see, okay, here's somebody different than Casey. And I can see where our value gaps are. And there's explanations. And it no longer becomes emotional, right? You know, mm. where... This they, is a different facet of diversity that enriches the team if you harness it right. Exactly. And, you know, and the first part is understanding. Like, if I can just understand that they are different and we have a shared common language and we can communicate a little bit, then we should be able to work together and build trust. But unless that, okay, it can become very emotional if we have different values, right? Like, if somebody has a different personality, say, oh, that's his personality. Okay, he overreacts, whatever it might be, type of thing like that. <laughs> but if somebody's values, like, I just don't understand those values, you can, it's very, very difficult to understand people's mm. and, and react positively without so we bring it more kind of objective way so it can deepen communication can deepen trust and adds to that diversity and inclusion and because it's kind of the intrinsic motivation it creates room for more you know uh, creativity and more innovation I, I imagine that um and perhaps correct me if i'm wrong particularly for managers to have feedback um, i know there's different uh SWOT analysis that you can do on the strengths and weaknesses of your team and sort of map out those things too, but that's more maybe skills-based. And what you're talking about is a much deeper inner sort of drive. For example, if, if I know that this person on my team really would like public recognition for their role and that for them, that's going to just make them feel seen and make them feel good about their work. That's their internal intrinsic maybe motivating need um, that drives them to do a great job. Maybe another person on the team, it's something different. It's about, I'm not sure, you can, you can guide me on what would be the others, but it helps maybe a manager then know how to meet the emotional, not exactly. completely the emotional needs, but to I'll predict. They are emotional as well, yeah. You know, that's right? your, They're in your, some ways, it's... Because it's if you're misunderstood, like if your manager doesn't understand you <clears throat> as a human being, you're not happy, right? You get negative emotions yeah. from that. Well, you're not seen. It, exactly. And, and this helps you be seen. So like, you know, I don't have high status needs. Like my status needs to be publicly seen, be publicly visible, right? And you know, I've managed people with very high needs for that. And, you know, before it too, like, I'm like, oh, they're just being narcissistic again. You know, when I get into my oh, negative kind of, you know, prima donna patty, like, 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 yeah, why well, like, you know, like, you know, I've done other stuff. I'm not always asking for recognition. You know, like I get into my catty negative humanity, which is part of me, you know, and, and you, you know, it, 
like without that objectivity, without that understanding, without that ability to see, then, you know, I can have a negative lens towards somebody mm. like that as a manager because I have different needs and vice versa. I have very high rationality needs. I love debating. You know, I love kind of intellectually sparring. This is where we like enjoy pieces. the conversation too. <laughs> right. So it comes very naturally. So, but you know, there's members on the team, like, they hate don't it. want to be pushed like when i when i ask that third why they're like no please no like <laughs> just let know, it go I, i'm a manager i'm whatever you know like i have the status why don't you just trust my opinion i'm like no just i just follow my, my it's not about you it's a, it's about the yeah. idea you know and i'm like oh, you know why, why can't why can't you understand that you know like and i've been You're in seeking places truth like that. here right, right? You know, truth seeking you know? right <laughs> patience truth. isn't necessarily one of my highest virtues so this helps me be more patient Definitely. Well, I certainly have found what limited experience I've had with the dude very, very exciting to read about. And in your most recent article, I think you put out on uh, on LinkedIn, which I found really interesting, too, and how it mapped out. And, and you talk about that in that article. So I am excited to continue to learn about how this is something that uh, we can use not only in companies, but I'm even just thinking... I mean, I'm I'm serving on a board of a women's organization, Few Japan, of course, uh, that you are actually, well, in case, is supporting um, as, a, as an organizational member. So thank you for that. Um, but I often think, you know, what are the benefits even for the nonprofit sector to be thinking about how they would use Attuned? Because, you know, working in the nonprofit sector, often it's... Um, you know, volunteerism, right? And so if I even just think to the volunteer boards I served on in Canada 20 years ago, um, that team building space, there's probably a lot of overlap on people coming around a sense of, you know, being mission focused, like wanting to support women's empowerment or wanting to support, you know, uh, refugees or wanting to support, you know, reducing child poverty. There are these commonalities of the values that are bringing those volunteers to the table to work in the nonprofit sector to move the dial on those organizations and have, have change agency and social impact. But it's not like a CSR initiative. It's not their professional jobs. This is their volunteer role, right? As a citizen or a civic duty, or maybe it's their, their upbringing. I don't know. I mean, my parents did a lot of civic volunteering out of Christian upbringing in small town Canada, right? But I think even for the nonprofit sector then, to understand even within everyone having that, maybe altruism, motivator out of volunteering, wanting to volunteer and give their time, there might be other things they're also wanting to get out of that experience that then I, th I think they could find out about themselves would be would be interesting too. So for a lot of different organizations, right, this is a really interesting way to build the team. Yeah, I think anywhere where there's two humans in the room like or, or two humans connecting, it can kind of be quite helpful. So and like, if you probably think of your own kind of nonprofit experience, I'm sure there were unproductive conversations and unproductive times. <laughs> and it's because people are coming together quite often with different motivations, and they have a different kind of core driver for that, and you can't get alignment. And I think this can help get alignment, right? To create higher levels of psychological safety. So you should be able to achieve more as a group. Um, but yeah, you know, like, Konkatsu, like, is still a thing in Japan, right? You know, and there's been ideas. Hey, uh, I can attune. Yeah, <laughs> promoting marriage, marriage matching. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? That's that's absolutely, so I can we, imagine. We, we've right? had ideas like, hey, you know, okay, well, you know, when husband and wife fight, like, well, they're fighting typically because of values. And if you have big gaps in they value are. sets type of, of things, so at least it's Absolutely. And, I mean, in terms of, like, how life partnering plays out, like, what are your aspirations for a life partner? Like, are you looking for a traditional division of gender roles in the family 
you know, patriarchal old school, like, you know, version of like the 1950s, you know, uh, household, or are you looking for life partnering that's more holistic and, and there's this individual respect and playing to your strengths and yeah, if, if, absolutely. You could get that information right off the get go. I think. Right. Would oh, be, no, I think a lot okay. of women would be like, "Whoa, dodge double <laughs> <laughs> And and maybe men too. And you know, maybe maybe some men are looking for more outside the box partners, but you know, maybe they're not finding women who who code as outside the box. It'd be interesting to see on a dating app how how much individuals would reveal their real selves. I think it's a bigger population after, you know, I think it'd be quite large, right? Especially right? if it's to like say, that Konkatsu level, like, okay, this is going to be a life partner, you know, but. Yeah, for sure. You'd want to really have some serious information on what's you know, the match. and what's Self-awareness the is pretty big. And, you know, people ultimately just want to be happy, right? So you have to yeah. kind of, if I reveal this, the tendency is, okay, I'll attract somebody, you know, more aligned and I can be happier. So. Yeah, I highly recommend that people go into marriage <laughs> or just or just life partnering. If we, if we don't even worry about the legal iterations of that, just go into life partnering with a little bit more evidence based approach. Because, you know, I've, you know, been in different relationships and had failures and, and been there, done that. Right. And it's 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 like it's like the job. It's the exactly the it's same, It's a right? huge identity shift, right? It's like, oh, okay, I thought that this was going to be the lifelong, you know, relationship. Right, and, and then you, 10 know, years you go through in, all the emotional problems like, oh as well. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> am know, I yeah. good enough? Am I a bad person type of thing? You know, am I just negative? Should I be more patient? Whatever it might be, right? And yeah, and maybe if dynamics. it's value alignment, it's like you're investing in vain because there's just not a good fit on the on the, on the the intrinsic motivations of how to life partner with one another. So that's an excellent, interesting area you can innovate in Japan. Absolutely. On that note, I'm going to ask you to give us a a last sort of your hopes. I mean, you've done a lot of work supporting women in the entrepreneurial space, women startups. Uh, You featured them in that book. You obviously wrote uh, the script for the movie, uh, startup right there, girls, right? there we go. The Japanese, yeah. yeah, the Japanese movie startup girls, which was so interesting. Um, obviously you're a supporter of few Japan, which we're grateful for. Um, but putting aside those pieces for your role as a, as a leader in Japan, and I certainly see you as an inclusive leader in Japan. And that's why I'm so happy to have you in the, in the thought partner network, inspiring me and, and helping me learn. What is your hopes either for your industry or, for Japan or for the world, the sky's the limit. You could decide what scope you want to talk about and what would be your, you know, where do you want to see things move the dial in the next five to 10 years? What do you want to see change? Uh, I would probably just put it as a lifetime, right? You know, like I want to solve this goal. Like if we look from a very work perspective, like, you know, how do we make it better and more inclusive and have kind of more diversity and just basically more understanding and more trust and more psychological safety in our work environments and making those kind of big decisions? And that's kind of my goal professionally, right? And that's a problem for a lifetime. You know, I think kind of as a as running an organization as a founder, you know, it's like social justice. I've got a couple of, of those bones in my body, right? And, you know, I think a key part of it is the distribution of happiness and like, you don't want, you know, being aligned, just a few people very happy and, you know, some okay and a lot unhappy, right? So, you know, and when it comes to kind of diversity and inclusion, it's really a discussion about power. So I have a little bit of power, right? You know, so we have some economic power, we have some organizational power and, you know, can we use those to help, you know, that social justice cause, make it more kind of inclusive, you know, increase kind of, you know, the 
the happiness level and help people that might not have had those opportunities, you know, where systematically they've been overlooked or they don't get the chance as well. Yeah, we can take those chances. You know, we can embed that into the organization. So I think as an organization, just want to build that and do as much as we can. So like those processes are there, like, you know, that mentality and that thought process there. I think there's a lot of things kind of to overlook, but, you know, I guess I'm from, you know, let me just change my world. Let me be nice to right. my kids. Let me be nice to my wife. Let me be nice to my friends, you know, to, to the people I meet at work every, every day. And, you know, if I can make one person's life happier, they can probably make another, right? You know, and right. I, what I'd love to see is, you know, now that we've had Corona, everybody knows the, you know, the R0, the replication rate of Corona, right? But there is a replication rate of happiness. There is a mm. replication rate, you know, of anger. Do you know what they are? No, most people don't know what the replication, you know, rate of happiness mm. is, but it's higher than Corona. So if you go out and, you know, you make somebody else happier, the joy. they'll go out and make 2.2 people more happier as well, right? So that's what I can go do. And I'll try to do it as much as I can. Of course, there's days when I'm angry and I'll try to keep that replication rate low, but, you know. <laughs> go so, off to the bathroom and scream in a pillow. <laughs> so, you know, it's just being human, right? You know, and I want yeah. to do more of that and help, I guess, more people. I guess if people could understand what is the replication rate of human, you know, of happiness, and everybody knew that. I think we have a and, happy and their personal power in that. Exactly. How personally, individually powerful we actually are in that particular piece. And 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 so the change agency really can begin from, from that position, that power of one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's that's a fabulous lesson and takeaway for our audience today and for all for me as well. So thank you very much for such an exciting and dynamic uh, discussion. Um, I always learn so much and enjoy speaking with you every time we meet. Um, this is the first time we've done this digitally, though. I was realizing um, the last conversations were always really long coffee <laughs> days um, in, in Tokyo. But uh, I look forward to that day as well when we can get back to some of that normal. So thank you, Casey, for sharing all of these thoughts and, and lessons today. I'm not sure if people have uh, clued in already or started putting this on their radar, but we are coming up to the 10th anniversary of the East Japan uh, earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown, um, March 11th, of course. Can't believe it's been 10 years. Um, so we will be doing a special commemorative series. I've had the pleasure of um, doing what we call participatory action research for the last five years where... I would go into communities and I would follow young women leaders in post-disaster Tohoku and learn about their leadership, what they were pursuing, what the roadblocks they were experiencing in local rural communities in Tohoku, and then how they were navigating and overcoming those challenges to bring their visions and their ideas uh, for their communities forward. And so we're going to kick off uh, next week. It'll be our first live stream actually in held in Japanese, and we will feature Mizuho Sugeno. She will be joining us from Namie in Fukushima, and uh, she's originally from Nippon Matsu, which uh, actually was one of the hearts of uh, organic farming in Japan. And she will be uh, sharing all of her insights about organic farming practices in Japan, how the post-disaster context led to using the skills of basically organic farming to restore and bring back the soil, because of course they had to restore the soils from all the nuclear damage, uh, the cesium and whatnot, and the different techniques to do that, to be able to uh, restore the soils, to be able to re-engage in safe farming practices in Fukushima. 
So a world of experience that we will learn about uh, from uh, a young woman leader who really has given me so much inspiration and I've learned so much already from, from the last five years of following her journey. So tune into that. And I will just issue a quick reminder that of course, Enjoy Diversity and Innovation is here to offer a multidisciplinary team. Uh, we have professionals capable of supporting on DNI for companies, for education, for leaders, and we would love to work with you. So give us a shout. You can find us at www.en-joi.com. We want it to be enjoyable and fun, even if it's disruptive and we unlearn things, right? Uh, that make us uncomfortable. And then we relearn how to have fun with diversity. So thank you for joining today. Thank you so much, Casey. Exactly, um, it was a lot of fun. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.